The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to teach God's Word. And maybe you're wondering, what do you do between Thanksgiving and Christmas? Uh, Maybe at Thanksgiving, you preach about Thanksgiving, which actually we're going to do tonight. Graham is going to teach from the letters of Paul about Thanksgiving, a brief uh, devotional message tonight at our prayer and testimony night, so come back for that. Uh, But Christmas season officially starts next Sunday, December 4th, and so in between What do we do? Well, we must preach about Christ, each and every message, but specifically this morning, I want us to look at Jesus, our servant and Savior from Mark chapter 10. And it's this time of year that that we ask a very important question, and here's the question, what is that baby doing here? What is that baby doing here? All over the place, everywhere, everywhere you look, there's pictures, there's little displays, there's dolls of a baby in what? A manger, that's right. Uh, Whether you're at Barnes & Noble, a bookstore, Walmart, Costco, no, they didn't pay me to say their names. Uh, What's that giant craft store where women love to go? That one, yeah. Uh, Wherever it is, the baby is there. But what is the baby doing there? Now, maybe you know, and and we know what the baby is doing here. Christmas is all about Jesus. It's all about that baby. But what is he doing here? Why did he come here? For what reason is the baby everywhere? We know the end. We know the answer to that question. Because we've read and we have the whole book. We have the Gospels. We have the book of Mark. We have Matthew and Luke and John. We know the end of the story. We know the answer to why the baby is here because we've read the book. And as New Covenant believers, we have the benefit of all of Scripture in our hands. We know the Gospel from the back to the beginning, the beginning to the end. The baby isn't just here to make us feel warm, fuzzy feelings at Christmas. Or is he? Is that all that Jesus is meant to do? Is that all that Jesus came to do was just to make us feel good about ourselves? To give us a reason once a year or in a season to have lights and trees and gifts and red and green decorations and all of that and it makes us feel really warm and nice and we gather and we eat lots of tasty pies and food maybe that's what christmas is to you maybe you're here this morning and you actually don't have any clue why jesus came maybe you don't know maybe that's the message that you've heard all of your life is that Jesus is just love and all he's come is, is he came to serve and to heal the blind and to set people free. But that was it. That's the only place that it went. Well, imagine being one of those 
at one of those nativity walkthroughs. Maybe you've been to one of those and, or something like that. And, and someone is standing there at a little manger on the ground. And, and you walk up to them. And this could happen in real life. Raise your hand if you've been to one of those. You've been. A lot of us have been to those. There was one of those growing up in Spokane, Washington. And it was, it was about 20 minutes from where we lived. And it was this massive display. There was this huge walkthrough. It was like going to Disneyland, but for Christians and at Christmas time. And, and it was beautiful. There was real people standing there dressed in, in traditional clothing. And there was camels walking around and donkeys and all sorts of things. And all of the smells and sounds of maybe what it would have been like a little bit, although there was traffic in the background, of that first Christmas were there. But imagine walking up to that little manger and there's someone standing and they, and they say, man, isn't this so cool? It's beautiful. This, this little manger, this little crib, someone built that out of wood. They really put a lot of time and, and energy into this. But what's the baby doing there? Why is he there? What's this all about? We know that there are people in the world who have no clue why Jesus came to earth other than to be like all of those other religious leaders who came to puff people up in their self-esteem and to make them feel good about themselves? How would you answer that question? How would you answer in a sentence why the baby came? Why the baby is here? How would you answer that? I think it's a really good exercise for us in this time of year, all year, How would you write out or say out loud in a sentence to someone, what is it all about? Why is he here? What would you say? Maybe write that down as an assignment or as as an exercise today. You know, if our response is something like, oh, well, well, that's Jesus. God loves the world and he sent his son to serve and to bless and to show God's love. That's not all of the answer. That's true and that's good, but... It would miss the point. Jesus is going to tell us in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45, why he came, what the baby is doing here. Turn to Mark chapter 10 and let's read together verses 32 through 45. And as you're turning there, I want to just let you know that out in the foyer on our welcome kiosk there, there's little cards Uh, to invite friends to our services during the Christmas season. They have our Christmas Eve Eve service and our Christmas Day service there, so grab a few of those, share those with your neighbors, people that you're praying for, sharing the gospel with, and let's see the Lord bring people to hear about this Christ, this Christmas season. Read along with me, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, And flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up 
to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, We're able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, in three weeks, we'll look at the way that James and John answered Jesus' question to them. And the reason I say in three weeks, because uh, uh, I get to preach again on the 18th, and so Phil and I, as we were talking through this, thought maybe doing kind of part one of this passage today, and then part two in a couple of weeks. But we're going to look at next time, James and John's answer, how they answered Jesus' question to them, and we're going to contrast it with Bartimaeus in the next section. And Jesus' question to them is this, what do you want me to do for you? It's a staggering question. That Jesus, the Lord of all, would ask James and John, kind of these clueless, somewhat, clueless disciples in this passage, what do you want me to do for you? And they give remarkably different answers, James and John and Bartimaeus. And he asks them the same question. Look at verse 51. Jesus said to Bartimaeus, the blind beggar who had never seen What do you want me to do for you, Bartimaeus? Same question, different answers, different responses. That get at the heart of discipleship and servanthood. So we'll look at them then, but for this morning we're going to go, we're going to look at Jesus' response to James and John's request, which is, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And what we're going to look at this morning is Jesus' response to them, to their request. And here's the point. We serve, which will be next time, because Jesus serves. Jesus is a servant. And if Jesus is anything, He has always forever been that thing. That attribute, that characteristic, that perfection of God has always been. And Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. Jesus serves. And there's a lot to say about that first part, we serve. There's a lot of application in this passage for us as believers. We serve because Jesus serves. It's, it, and it's simple for us. As we think about we serve, it's really easy for us to think about we serve. What do we do? What do I do? 
well, I'm a pastor. There's, there's lots of things that, that, that I, I get to do. And there's all of you, all of these people, and, 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 and you come and you serve and, and you, you faithfully pour into ministries. We have all these programs and ministries because if we didn't, then what would we do with our lives? No, no, no. Ministry doesn't exist for us. We exist for ministry. I'm a pastor. If I, if I, don't, if I don't have people showing up, then you know, I won't feel important. Well, no, that's not the point either. What would I be doing? Well, that's not really the point. We have a ministry. We have jobs to do. We have families. We have relationships. Maybe in your job, you have a lot of people who work for you. You pay them. You expect them to show up and do stuff for you. And that's true, and there's not necessarily anything wrong about that. But it's really easy to slip into the mindset of, well, these people are here for me. They exist for me. You all exist for me and Pastor Phil to kind of just get you to do stuff. Well, no, that's not what we do. That's not the point of pastors. At least it's not supposed to be. That's not how we think of you. You've got a family. I've got all these kids. What are they good for except for to do what I want them to do? You know, clean the house and... Stop yelling. Stop waking me up, uh, waking me up at 3 a.m., please. No. Your children aren't just here to serve you. But it's really easy for us as, as sinners to slip into the mindset that people exist for us. And if, and if we don't have something to do, then we'll just get bored. And So we've got to have all these ministries because otherwise people will just get bored. But is that why we exist? Is that why we serve? Jesus says, no, you serve because Jesus served. You pour out your life because Jesus poured out his life on a cross. My job, your job, therefore, is to put their needs, your employees' needs, your family's needs, your church's needs, your neighbor's needs before your own in sacrifice. Our goal is to help others, is to serve others. But that's for next week. That's for next week. This morning, what we're going to focus on is the second part. Jesus serves. We serve because Jesus serves, but this morning we're going to think about Jesus serves. He came to serve. And all that he did was to the end that he might serve us by saving us from our sin through his death and through his resurrection. All that Jesus did was to the end of saving sinners, lost, helpless, poor beggars like you and me through his death and resurrection. But not just any service, but a very specific, a very particular kind of service, of ministry. He didn't come just to heal and cast out demons and to be a public servant but to serve in a specific kind of way. Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to seek and to save lost people. Not people who are mostly good and okay and kind of have themselves together, but just need a little pat on the back every once in a while. But no, people who are dead in their sins, slaves to their sin and to Satan, lost without hope, enemies of God. He came on a search and rescue mission to save sinners from eternal 
ruin, from eternal judgment that we deserve. We deserve every ounce of judgment that Jesus took upon Himself in our place. But He came to seek and to save the lost. That was the mission and the purpose. And so, what do we do with that? How did Jesus serve? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So I know that it's kind of be just jointed a little bit because we're going to take parts of this passage, but I think it will be helpful for us to look at how Jesus served and how we serve, starting with how did Jesus serve. And here's the three points. He gave up his life, he drank the cup, and he paid the ransom. Jesus gave up his life, he drank the cup, and he paid the ransom. First, let's look at Jesus giving up his life. Look at verse 45. Here is Mark's one-sentence explanation for what the baby is doing here. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. These are purpose statements in the book of Mark for what Jesus came to do. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but, purpose statement, to serve. And purpose statement, to give his life as a ransom for many. So what does it mean that Jesus gave up his life, that he gave his life as a ransom for many? And that's what I want to focus on for now. He gave up his life. question is, how? How did he do that? Well, look at verse 32. They were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, And what were they going to Jerusalem for? What were they going there for? You know, Jesus was going to die. But did the disciples get it yet? No, this is the third time in the book of Mark. This is the third time that Jesus has said, look, we're going to Jerusalem and I will die. I'm going to die. The Son of Man came to die. This is installment number three of Jesus' mission statement that he was coming he had come to earth and he was going to Jerusalem to die and it says they were going up and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they this is this was new to me reading through this this is something i never just never really struck me Jesus is walking ahead of them and they were what amazed i got to walk in Jerusalem with a rabbi before a teacher one of my professors in seminary not a Jewish rabbi, but he was my teacher. And this guy was 6'5", 270 pounds. I mean, he's a big dude. And the guy could flat out walk. I mean, he was cruising. And our whole group was saying, Dr. Grassani, slow down. We can't keep up. He was cruising. He was like Jesus, walking ahead of us, leading the way. No one was going to die on this trip. No one was going to give up their life as a ransom for many, but Jesus was, and the disciples were like, Jesus is booking it. He's cruising. And they were amazed, and it says that those who followed were what? Afraid. Why were they afraid? The disciples knew what what kind of people lived in Jerusalem. It's the scribes and the Pharisees. This is the Jewish leaders. Jesus, they hate you. They don't like you. If you go there, this, this, is, this is the belly of the beast. This is bad news. Don't go to Jerusalem. What are you thinking? 
They're going to Jerusalem. This is the end of the line. They were amazed. Those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12, again, he he gathers them around. He says, hey guys, listen up, listen up. Just to remind you, this is what I've come here for. I've come here to die. And they're thinking, Jesus, what are you talking about? Why are you doing this? Why would you go there? But Jesus, brothers and sisters, remember this, was not a victim. Jesus was not a victim. He was not some innocent third-party bystander who just kind of got grabbed off the road and threw him up on the cross. No, this was the plan from eternity past. In Revelation, it says that there's a, a book. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in it are written names who belong to Jesus, who will forever live and dwell with Jesus on the new earth. And what's that book called? It's the book of the Lamb. And what are lambs meant for in the Bible? But to be slaughtered as a sacrifice for sins. Jesus was going to die, not as a victim, but He went willingly. He gave up His life as a willing sacrifice. And what does it say? What does Jesus say to the disciples? He tells them this, Look men, I'm going to be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to condemn me to death unjustly. Verse 33. I'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. So the Jews and the Gentiles both hate him and they want to kill him. Jesus says, man, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on. They're going to hawk loogies in my face. And they're going to like it. And they will flog me, and they will beat me, and they will kill me. But in three days, I'm going to rise. Yeah, Jesus, we'd really like you to do something for us. We've got something we'd really like for you to do for us. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the heartache At a human level, what Jesus would have felt when he poured out his guts to his best friends, his closest companions, and they say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Have you ever had a friend pour out their heart to you? And you know, you know that it's coming. You know because you see the tears in their eyes that something really difficult is about to come out. Maybe you start to feel a little nervous because you go, oh man, what, am I, what do I do? What do I say? But you know because you remembered in that good book you read about biblical counseling or that conversation you had with one of your pastor friends or that person who discipled you that said, you know what, sometimes it's just best when someone is hurting to just be quiet, just to sit there with them. Put your arm around them. Let them know that you're there that God is faithful and and just your presence will be a reminder to them that God is good and he'll see them through this trial. Now it's easy for us to look down on James and John and say, what were these guys thinking? What were they thinking? We've been there. But just think for a moment on a human level. We know that Jesus knew what he was doing. He wasn't a victim. He went willingly He told them for the third time what he was going to do. He knew that these men didn't get it. But you remember that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. He is tempted in every way as we were. You know that he was tempted when these men said, 
Jesus, we want you to do something for us. Tempted by resentment, by frustration, whatever. These guys don't get it, I'm out of here. And just walk off, leave these guys. Fine, I'll go to Jerusalem on my own. I'll go on my own. You know that he was tempted by that. But he didn't put them to shame. He endured even those temptations so that he would be a perfect substitute, a perfect sacrifice for sins when he gave up his life. What a Savior. What a, what a Savior. Can't even imagine. All that to say is Jesus gave up his life. The Son of Man, Savior and Servant, laid down His life freely, brothers and sisters. He laid it down freely. Freely. How often do we want a little kickback when we serve? How often do I crave a little recognition when I've done something good? Jesus did it willingly, and He knew what the outcome would be. He laid down His life. He chose this What an act of humility and of servanthood. The Son of Man, brothers and sisters, He came to what? To serve. He came to serve. But the Son of Man, He gave up His life. But who is the Son of Man? What is the Son of Man? Let a little theology refresher here. The Son of Man, in verses 33, look at verse 33, chapter 10, verse 33, it says... Does it say? Yes, it does. We are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered. And then verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What is the Son of Man? Well, it's, it would be pretty natural for, for us to think the Son of Man, he's a man, he's like us, he's fully human, Son of Man. Well, it's actually a description, an Old Testament description of the deity of Jesus. He's 100% man But this man is also 100% God. The Son of Man title points to the divinity of Jesus from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 19. You don't have to turn there. I'll just kind of read this description of you. Daniel sees someone in a vision. And verse 14 says this. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. By the way, Bob Johnson is teaching a class on Daniel during our equipping hour, 845 to 945. You should go to that class if you're not already and learn more about this. Verse 14, Daniel sees someone, and it says, There came one like a son of man. But Okay, great. But what about the son of man? Ancient of days. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Son of man, in Mark, came to serve. Son of man, in Daniel chapter 7, should be served by all nations and tongues. This is the Son of man. Jesus is 100% divine. He is all God. He is all man. But to him belongs dominion, an everlasting dominion. All nations and tongues should bow to Him, should serve Him. This Jesus, the Son of Man, is eternal. He is glorious. And He's glorious in this text because He is a servant. Amazing. 
And James and John, they didn't get it. They didn't see it. They knew that glory was coming, but they didn't get how, what the path to that glory would be. But we'll look at that a little bit more next time. And so in verse 45, Mark gives us Jesus' purpose statement. The Son of Man, even the Son of Man, even this eternal God-man, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give His life as a ransom for many. All nations and people, brothers and sisters, they should serve Him. Seth Johnson texted me this morning saying, pray for me, I, bust, I, I hurt my ankle, but I've got a big hike into the village tomorrow. Would you pray for me? Why? Why is he going into the village? Why is he going with a hurt ankle to talk to people who probably give a rip about the gospel at this point? Because all nations and languages should serve him, but they don't. They don't. Jesus serves so that some would go and be missionaries. That some might join Seth in Indonesia and be a missionary to translate the Scriptures. Jesus came to serve so that some might go to Utah and proclaim the Gospel to Mormons who've never heard about the real Jesus. Jesus came to serve so that some would go so that our neighbors, so that all of us would go and share with our neighbors about this Savior, about this eternal Son of Man. Because He's worthy of glory and honor and power, and we should all bow, but this Son of Man was to be delivered over, to be killed. He should have been served. He should have been worshipped. He should have been put on a throne. But He came to serve the lost, and it's unreal. But this is who Jesus is. This is who Jesus is and has eternally been as the Son of Man. He came to give up His life. This was the plan. Here's the thing. The one whom all peoples, nations, and languages should serve, He came to serve them. What a crazy, crazy plan. We would never imagine it. It flips our ideas of kingdom and of servanthood, and of victory on its head. It's paradoxical. It shouldn't be this way. The one who came to serve was beaten and mocked and spit on and killed. But here's the thing. This wasn't a gimmick. Jesus wasn't just playing a role. The Son of Man didn't just come to to serve because, well, you know, it'll be a good example to the people, the sinners. And they should serve because it just make the world a better place. And if we just all serve, then everyone will be happy. Jesus wasn't just playing a role. This wasn't just a, a job Jesus took for a little bit like the Undercover Boss show, if you've ever seen that. Some pretty, pretty sad clips of that movie where the boss, what does he do? He, he goes undercover as an employee and he goes and he works behind the food line at his restaurant to see how his employees, see how his managers and his employees, how they do, how they, do, how they run the business. And then he, you know, he kind of does this terrible thing at the end where he pulls him into his corporate office and he has the cameras on him. He's like, you're fired because you were terrible. Um, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not, you know, he's not tricking people. Jesus wasn't in disguise. He came to serve and it cost him everything. And so Christ is a servant. The Son of Man came to serve and to give, to pour out his life, to lay down his life as a sacrifice 
They don't have to die now. I will die in their place. That lamb that you've been slaughtering all of these years, I will be the last lamb and I will be slaughtered in the place once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Father, in order to bring them to you, this is the gospel. This is what the Son of Man came to do. And no one knew that he was the master until he died. All along the road of his life and up to Jerusalem, he was misunderstood. And then he was beaten and mocked and spit on. And then you remember when he's dying on the cross, several would say, the centurions would say, surely he was the Son of God, the Son of Man. They got it, but not until he died because the servant's king came to die. He came to serve and to give up his life. This was the mission. This is what it means to follow Christ. If we follow Christ, the servant is not greater than his master. We, brothers and sisters, we are servants. We'll flesh that out more next in a few weeks here. But I can't think of someone that illustrates this more just in our everyday lives than, than mothers. Mothers are servants, and, and they're, they're hardly ever noticed. <laughs> I was cutting down a Christmas tree yesterday, and that's the fun part, right? Trudging through the snow, and you're looking at all these trees, and you finally get to cut one down. I mean, that's hard work. But what's harder work? Pulling your kid out of the three feet of snow for the 40th time, you know, as the guys are off doing their thing. That's what the moms are doing. They, they labor. They pour out their lives. They stay up late. They wake up early. They get spit on all the time by their kids. They're little kids. Your big kid spitting on your mom. Stop that. They don't rise up and call you blessed very often, do they? But that's what the Proverbs say they will do. That your children will rise up and call you blessed if you're a faithful, humble mother. How much greater with the Son of Man? No one called him blessed. Hardly. A few got it. A few saw. But most didn't. Mothers, most of, most of your kids, don't, most of the time, they don't get it. They don't see it. No one knew. The Son of Man came to serve and to give up his life. But what else did he do? What else did he do? He gave up his life. Jesus serves by giving up his life, but he also serves by drinking the cup. Look at verse 38 and 39. Jesus said to them, after their question, we want, you to grant, you want you, we want you to grant us to sit on your right hand and on your left hand in glory. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? If you're a believer, you can be baptized with this baptism. You should do that. It's a way we identify with Christ. But there was a baptism coming that Jesus alone could endure, could experience. There was a cup that Jesus was going to drink that only Jesus could drink. Are you able? And they're like, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, we can do that. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Drink the cup, baptize. Yeah, we'll do it, Jesus. We can do that. No clue what Jesus is saying, right? They didn't have a clue what he was saying. And in each of Jesus' major predictions of his suffering in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 30, and in this section here, 
Each of Jesus' predictions is, is followed up with this gut-wrenching, these gut-wrenching statements of, if you want to follow me, you're not going to avoid this. I'm going to suffer. You're going to suffer. If you want to follow me, it's going to be hard. But it will be worth it. It will be worth it. Because what James and John understood is that glory was coming. A kingdom was coming. And in Jesus' death, it was inaugurated. But it would be fulfilled in the future. But before them, before then, they would suffer just like their master. And so this is a major component of Jesus' discipleship teaching. If you want to be a disciple of me, if you're going to be a true follower of me, you will not avoid suffering. Maybe for a little while, but it will come. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. Friends, as we suffer, here's a key for us from this text. When you suffer for the sake of Christ, remember, Jesus led the way. He knew Look to Jesus, just as the disciples looked to him. Look to Jesus in your suffering. I know that it's difficult because suffering is painful. Affliction is painful. But that's why God has given us brothers and sisters in Christ. We serve as reminders to one another as we come alongside and say, look, you're not alone. Don't suffer alone. Don't struggle with sin alone. You belong to Jesus and you belong to his family. Let's look to him together. Let's remember Jesus who came to serve, who who suffered first, who drank the cup first, who poured out his life first. Look to him. Remember him who drank the cup. Now in the Old Testament, the cup is a picture for God's plan, his, his destiny for someone. In Psalm 16 verse 5, says, the Lord is my portion and my cup. This is a good thing in this text. Sometimes it's, it's a picture of blessing. But it usually was not a picture of blessing. Usually the cup is a cup of wrath from God. A cup of affliction. Isaiah 51 verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have Drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of His wrath. If you read the prophets, God disciplined them. They suffered for their idolatry. Oh, their wickedness. Oh, our wickedness. Oh, the cup of wrath that we deserve for our sin against the Lord. For our hypocrisy, for our pride, for our conceit, for our lack of gentleness and meekness and humility and compassion oh the wrath that we deserve he says you who have drunk from the hand of the lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl the cup of staggering oh how they suffered for their sins they were exiled they had no food because of their oppression the oppression of the those who Persecuted them, the Assyrians. As they were oppressed by Babylon. Read Jeremiah and see the brokenness of the state of the people of God as they drank from the cup of the wrath of God. 
Why was Jesus sobbing tears of blood in the garden? Because he knew that was to be poured, what was to be poured out for him was a cup of wrath. Oh, Father, if there's any other way, remove this cup from me. Take this cup from me. But he knew there was no other way, but he had to drink the cup of wrath for us. And he would drink that cup. And he did it willingly. He drank the cup. He drank the curse. He knew what was poured out in that cup. It was a cup of God's wrath. And this was a curse. He was to be cursed for us. And he was baptized. He was overwhelmed with the flood waters of the wrath of God that we deserved. And he was immersed in judgment that he did not deserve. Just as we will immerse two young brothers in the waters of baptism showing that what they deserved was death. But Jesus died for them and then he was raised up three days later so they will be raised up. But what we deserved was to be crushed by the waves of God's wrath. You know it, don't you? We know it. How we've slandered. How we've thought evil thoughts of others. How we've doubted the Lord. How we've looked at the gospel and said, really? Is Jesus the only way? I don't know. Seems kind of narrow-minded to me. Jesus drank a cup. Do you see it? He did it. He really, really, really did it. There was really a cross made of wood. Just like that manger. Crafted by hands who Jesus Himself fashioned in His own image in their mother's wombs. He was put up on a cross. He really died. He really did. He really drank the cup. He was really baptized. And He says, are you able? And they say, yeah, we're able. No, they weren't. Not for a second. Because only the perfect Son of Man who is eternal and infinitely powerful and infinitely authoritative, who has all dominion and all rule, is able to drink from the hand of God the cup of wrath because He is God. Do you see it? This is our Savior. This is Him. But here's the thing, friends. If you have not bowed the knee to King Jesus and said, Jesus, yes, I will follow you. I I know that you had to die in my place. I know that you had to come to give up your life because I could not give up my own life to pay for my own sins. If you have not come to Jesus like that, crawling to Him saying, Lord Jesus, save me. Then there is a cup that you will drink. And you will drink from it. And you will drink it to the dregs for eternity. Hell is real. Judgment is real. Death is real. It's appointed for man to die once. And then what? Church? Judgment. Friend, if you don't know Jesus, Jesus drank a cup for you. Come to Him. Jesus will will bear the burden of your sin. He will. But if you will not come to Him, you will drink the cup of His wrath for your own sins for eternity. If you reject Jesus, 
you reject life and freedom and joy in Him. John 10, 17 says this, For this reason the Father loves me. Jesus is speaking of Himself. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. In other words, I drink, I drink the cup willingly. I will be baptized with the baptism of God's wrath willingly. I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I'm going to drink the cup. I will be baptized with judgment for you sinners. And Jesus says, I lay down my life of my own accord. No one forced him. Those nails did not trap him. But they merely accomplished the eternal, unstoppable, unchanging plan of God. And and this is what leads to our last point. Jesus Christ paid a ransom. He came to serve. He gave up his by giving up his life. He came to serve by drinking a cup and being baptized with the baptism of God's wrath. And Christ paid a ransom. Verse 45 says that the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. As we read this passage, we see that Jesus had a mission. And it was to pay a ransom for many. How did he serve those that he loved so much? He drank a cup. He gave up his life. And and here's how. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Ransom. What is a ransom? We've all seen the movies. Someone calls and says, you need to bring $250 million before midnight or, you know, or else. The ransom payment, it's a payment. It is the securing of release, according to the Greek lexicon, the authoritative Greek lexicon, the securing of release by the payment of a price. A securing of release by a payment of a price. It releases you from bondage. A payment is made and you are freed. You're free. You owed a debt you couldn't pay and you're, you're trapped by that. You have been captured. You're, you're, you are a prisoner. There's a, a, a debt that must be paid. You can't pay it, but it's paid by someone else. And it releases you from bondage. And so here we see Jesus saying, I came to pay with my own life the payment that was owed to release sinners. But here's the key. The payment wasn't to Satan. It wasn't to you. It was to the Father Himself. His paying with His own life was a payment to the Father. And just remember again, when we talk about Jesus, when you talk to your friends at Christmas about Jesus, Jesus is God. And so God is paying a ransom to Himself to free you from your sin, to bring you to Himself. It's all about God, it's all about Him. And it's glorious. Now, I love Narnia. Anyone else love Narnia? Especially at Christmas time, right? There's just certain movies, certain books, you're like, oh, I really want to 
read that story or watch that movie because it's Christmas. And there's snow. By the way, there is snow in the mountains if you go up there, by the way. It's a lot of fun. Now, I've loved, loved Narnia, but C.S. Lewis got it wrong in Narnia. There's a lot of good there. It's a, an awesome story, but it's bad atonement theory. It's bad ransom theory. Edmund is enslaved to who? The White Witch. And Aslan dies as a payment to whom? The White Witch. But that's ransom theory to Satan. That's ransom to Satan theory, rather, of atonement. God did not pay a ransom to Satan as though Satan was holding people captive that God could not free. No. Satan isn't here in this text, is he? There's no mention of that in the pages of Scripture Last time we see Satan's name in the, in the book of Mark was when Jesus told Peter, Peter, you are acting like a devil. Get behind me and keeping me from the cross. This is a payment that Jesus made to his own father. It wasn't paid to Satan. The price was the life of the son and it was paid to the father. This is unbelievable. This is not a gospel that we would come up with, that we would conjure up on our own. And the ransom has to do with atonement. Substitution. A big phrase, penal substitutionary atonement. And there's some who who don't like that idea that God paid a price. Jesus had to die in our place, which was the only way Jesus had to die, and it was the will of the Father to crush His Son. God desired and designed to crush His Son. And Jesus was a part of that eternal plan that He Himself would be crushed in the place of sinners. This is penal substitutionary atonement. This was the plan for the ransom. And there's some who don't like that idea. They they think it means that God is angry. Well, guess what? He was angry. The New Testament attaches, one author says, attaches the the concept of penal substitution, or in other words, penal uh, uh, penalty. There was a penalty, there's a price to be paid, and there's a substitution. The New Testament attaches the concept of penal substitution to the cross of Christ by using this phrase, this important phrase, in the place of. Jesus died in the place of sinners. And that's exactly what the text says. Even the Son of Man, look at verse 45, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, or that word for could be translated, in the place of, or instead of, many. We deserve to die for our own sins, but Jesus, as the ransom himself, gave himself in the place of, was a substitution. He subbed us out and put himself in to free us from out, out from under the wrath of God. And as a, as a consequence of our sins, enslavement to Satan and our flesh, out of self-love to love of Christ and love of the Savior, and it's been asked, why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't, couldn't God have just, I don't know, baked brownies to free us from sin? You know, done something else? Why did Jesus have to die? And really, that's the central question of, of all religion, isn't it? 
How is it possible to be reconciled to God? How is it that sinners are reconciled to God without punishing, uh, without God compromising His holiness? The answer is penal substitutionary atonement. Every sin must be punished. Every sin must be punished. And so either you will pay for your sins, I will pay for my sins and bear the punishment for my own sins, or, better option, Christ, of His own accord, in unity with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past, pays the price Himself. But why? But to magnify His mercy His forgiveness, His compassion, His kindness, His power to save sinners. We would not know the mercy and the compassion and the kindness of God in the way that we do save for the death of Christ on the cross. And so it is glorious. There has to be punishment for sin for God to maintain His justice and praise God. That punishment fell on His Son. It's just God who came to serve you, friends. Church, family, it's God who came to serve you. The uncreated, listen to this, the very God who is uncreated, eternal, perfect, and holy is your servant. He came to serve you. Unbelievable. He is a servant. The second person of the Trinity came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life. To hand it over. To put it in place of yours. To give it as a gift in the place of many. He came not to be served, which he should have been, but he came to serve. And again, not only is this one attribute that could easily be missed as we consider the glorious perfections of God, or as we th- read through the book of Exodus, what we see God doing is, as we've been listening through to messages and thinking through Exodus, God is serving His people. He is delivering His people. He is rescuing His people. And at every turn, they prove that they are unworthy of it. And this is our God. This is our God. This verse reminds us that this is one of God's great redemptive purposes in sending His Son to the earth to gloriously display, get this, to gloriously display in stark contrast to all other false gods and false religions that we could construe in our mind that He is a servant God. Not who we can boss around and appease with our silly sacrifices, but who took the initiative, who came of His own accord, out of His own plan to save. What a God we serve. Amen? And this is the best Christmas story ever. Way better than all the Hallmark stories that I know you love, and I do too. Do you? I don't know. Do we love them? Maybe we're just addicted to them. They talk about, you know, just the better you inside, and all of your Christmas dreams, and hopes and dreams coming true, and You just need to find the Christmas child inside of you. All of those sweet little things. This is better than all of those. He gave everything and we get freedom from sin 
and our guilt removed. A friend shared this quote with me this week about this great exchange, about what we get and what God got. Christ has no sin but ours, and we have no righteousness but His. Amen? Christ is not a sinner, but He took upon Himself our sins and the the penalty of our sins, and we have no righteousness but His. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that your righteousness is your own? Or do you believe that some religious ceremonies or attending church every once in a while or saying a prayer or walking an aisle or taking communion or something like that somehow is able to save you or being good enough or having a a big enough family or kids that are nice enough or good enough or a marriage that looks nice enough on the outside? Do you believe that you have no righteousness but Christ's? Is that what you're resting in? You must, otherwise you will drink a cup of wrath. We need to wrap up. And I think it'll be helpful for us to look at Bartimaeus' response in a few weeks because Bartimaeus gets it right. His eyes are opened to the beauty of this gospel and he responds with appropriate worship and service as a slave to Jesus, a willing slave Here's just a couple thoughts for us as we wrap up. As we think about friendship, you feel like a lousy friend sometimes. The disciples were, weren't they? I feel like a lousy friend sometimes. Maybe you do too. Maybe you're tempted to think, oh man, I'm just not nice enough, not good enough. I, I don't text enough, I don't call enough, and you just feel guilty Oh, that we would feel some of the weight of verses 32 to 34. Their their good friend and teacher sharing a tremendous burden with them. And they miss the opportunity to comfort and encourage. And so do we. So do we. We blow it too. But what can we pray instead? Lord, help me to be sensitive to opportunities, to, to be like you, to be a servant like you who have served me so well. Help me to not be so sensitive to my own preferences or how I wish I would be treated. Help me to be like you, Jesus, who who gives himself, gives herself, sacrificially, lovingly, joyfully for the good of my friends, that they might be reminded of your goodness toward them, your nearness to them, that you are with them when they feel alone, when they feel lonely, when they feel betrayed when they're hurting because of deep loss and pain. Ask the Lord to help you to be a a, a ready encourager, a ready comforter. Church, that's our ministry, if nothing else, to one another is to, to love each other by being there and caring and listening and praying. We can do that. When a, when a troubled fellow sojourner comes your way, Help them remember the faithfulness of God. We're all hurting in some way. Let's ask the Lord to help us to be the kinds of friends for His glory that we can be by His grace. Men, let's learn to pray like this as we step out of our work 
out of, out of our workplaces and go to our homes. Corey Milliken came home not to be served, but to serve and to initiate and set aside personal privilege and interests and appoint my family to the joyful and suffering servant King Jesus. Employer, boss, employee. You don't merely exist to make a paycheck, but to serve and to point people to Jesus as you do whatever you do. Whether you clean floors, or you sell products, or you manage people, your job is to serve so that people see Christ. Let's do it. Mothers, do you see your sympathetic high priest here when you've been spit, on for, spit up on for the fifth time by your infant? Remember that the Son of Man was spit on and mocked and, mocked and flogged and condemned, but He rose for you to forgive you when your anger has gotten the better of you. Embrace the servant Savior as you slave for your families. Men, as you serve for your families, as you serve for your churches, single people, as you use the time and the resources that God has given you to advance the gospel by giving your time and your energy, time and energy that you will never regret expending for the glory of God in eternity. You won't regret one second of it. So use it for His glory. Here's the last thing that we'll say. C.J. Mahaney said this, ultimately our Christian service exists only to draw attention to this source, Jesus, to our crucified and risen Lord who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's why Christian service exists. Whatever we're doing, we exist to draw attention to this source, to draw attention to Jesus, our risen Lord, who is the ransom for us all. Is that why you exist? Is that why you serve? Is that why you get up in the morning? And I get it. It's a struggle. It is battle. It is war every day to wake up with this kind of mentality. And that's what we must pray for, church. So I'm going to pray for us in that way. And as I pray, I'm going to invite uh, our two brothers, John and Chris. Where did Chris go? There's Chris. To join me on stage here and Pastor Phil as well. We're going to pray. And then we're going to sing. And then we're going to baptize these brothers who are wanting to follow in Christ's footsteps. They understand. They, they, they know what Jesus is calling them to. And they want to proclaim that to you for God's glory. Let's pray. Come on up, guys. Father, it is our desire to be served by your Son. Jesus, you are not ashamed to, to be called a servant, to serve us. Lord, we pray that you would... Help us in our serving and in our suffering to look to you that others would see and savor and cherish and delight in you, O Christ, our Savior and our friend and our servant. In Jesus' name, amen.